Joel 2, beginning of verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savour shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth their fruit, and the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Amen. purpose of repentance of course is that there will be some restoration and we will perhaps see tonight that God not only calls to repentance and restores but often or usually does this in a way which is surprising in its generosity and in its grace 
We saw last time about this uh, locust, locust uh, plague, a plague of locusts on Israel. We saw that destruction had already taken place to a degree, but yet there was worse to come. And this plague would culminate in a time so uh, horrific in terms of the destruction caused that it would be called the day of the Lord. And so when we see that term in scripture, the day of the Lord, we are to understand that this is extremely serious and extraordinary. Well, I think last time we focused, didn't we, on the need for repentance. And we asked ourselves that awkward question. Do we need to repent? A question we have to ask ourselves constantly. Certainly here there was a clear need for repentance. And so God, rather than leave people alone, God instead calls them to repentance. And not just as enemies, we, God calls uh, his enemies out there. Uh, to repent of their wickedness and turn to him, but also God's own children. He tells them to turn to him with their whole heart. And we mean their whole heart, their whole selves. We mean that with, with their mind, their heart, their emotions, their will, their whole being. And a promise is held out by God here uh, as ever, a promise of restoration and great blessing. And what I'd like to uh, emphasize at some point this evening is that God's blessing is frequently greater than is necessary, if you like. We might think of that scripture about sin uh, overflowing, it says abounding. What does it say? It says. Where sin abounded, grace did abound. Is that what it says? No. Grace did much more abound. And so when we kindle that flame of sin in our lives, God comes along and blankets the whole thing and smothers it in mercy. So we're going to look at, uh, firstly tonight, I want to think about this idea of repentance and look into that a little more. Uh, in particular, God's call to repentance. God's call here to repentance. And this uh, begins really in verse uh, 12. In verse 12. <laughs> Turn to me with all your heart so remember this is aimed at believers these people were believers and worshippers of Jehovah for us it means that of all the people that perhaps need to repent we should ask ourselves is it us needs to repent is it we who need to repent first 
So God is interested in the repentance of others, but more so the repentance of his children. You might see, uh, you might have noticed in the uh, text there, uh, the the sort of the elements of this repentance in verse twelve. Uh, first of all, uh, Joel the prophet speaking on God's behalf, God saying there. Uh, Turn to me with all your heart. Turn to me. So this implies that there has been a previous turning away from God. And so the sinful people are effectively turning their back on God in order to pursue their sin. Showing God their back, if you can believe that. This is what sin involves. And that very same word, turn, is used by God to encourage people to do the opposite and to now turn their back on their sin, show sin their back, show their contempt for their sin and instead look in the face of Jesus Christ and get that relationship fixed by the grace of God. So we turn. It also mentions fasting. And so this involved, of course, a, a partial or a complete abstinence, uh, usually from food for a season. And what this does is to, is to uh, break our habit of having our needs met immediately. Fasting also would give us a glimpse into an existence without the hand of God feeding us. It gives us a small glimpse and it's meant to humble us and put us in a correct spirit to approach God. It mentions there then weeping. And I said to you last time that weeping may not necessarily be outward tears that could be, it could be expressed inwardly, but I will say this, that in those extreme cases of regret over sin tears will flow whether you like it or not I'm, I'm someone who doesn't cry I, I would do anything not to cry I try to hold it together you know but if, if I have been in that place of repentance and I have cried properly with tears so that's almost to be expected it mentioned mourning as well. Mourning. Our mourning is mostly associated with when we have people we care for who die and we miss them. And we call that process of getting over this, if we can. We call that mourning, don't we? But this is something else. This is, this is mourning the death. A death of a relationship between us and God has taken place. And we're mourning that that thing that we had, that we ruined it. It goes on to describe repentance as involving a, a rending of the heart. This is the, this is the only place, this is the only place I'm aware of in the whole scripture where people are told to rend or tear their own hearts. And it's a figure of speech you might prefer to think of being heartbroken that we might uh, 
be asked by God to, to, to smash our heart, if you like. And here it uses the language of tearing. So that the same strength and energy that you would use to tear your clothes in those days as an act of grief, that same energy would be used to tear your own heart and bring yourself low. You may remember me saying that sometimes repentance, it's not just a, always an individual, an individual experience. Sometimes repentance needs to take place uh, on a congregational level. All the people in a congregation. But when, uh, when it mentions the word congregation in this passage, it's the congregation of the Lord that is the larger church. And so there is warrant here for, you know, times when Churches across a wider area. Perhaps churches that don't get on. But perhaps they could agree to have a day of repentance in, in their own places. Perhaps the whole region. Perhaps even the whole country. The whole country could have a day of repentance. And the church is worldwide. So why not? Why, why can't the church then have a... Uh, a, a planet-wide repentance uh, over the course of a day or two. It'd be hard to imagine uh, what God might do to his worldwide church if such a thing happened. But certainly in verse 15, 16, you, you heard me read, you heard me read uh, about the, the different classes of people. It was the mums and the dads. It was the toddlers. It was the babies. Bring them all in. It says, get them all here. If there's someone about to get married, put that on hold. Come together for this important act of sorrow, a rending of the heart. I find that this, uh, this particular Encouragement to repent is a great model of repentance. <coughs> the reason I say that, if you look at verse 17. So let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep. And let them say, and this is the prayer that is enjoined on these people, on these ministers. Spare thy people, O Lord. And give not thine heritage to reproach. Now, this is subtle but important. The people are not simply saying, Lord, and this is legitimate to, to ask God to say, Lord, we're your people. We know you care about us. And we pray you will visit us all over again. But it, it's more than that. The verse does not say that. The verse says the whole reason for the prayer of repentance is this. So that, so spare us, so that the heathen should not rule over the people. And then the heathen say, where, where is your God? And so the case is made to have mercy on the people. Why ultimately, not to fix their problem right now, 
But that's part of it. Ultimately, it's about the very name of God himself. Which is why I said that this is a good model of repentance. Because the priority here is not the satisfaction of their immediate needs. More than that, it is the very glory of God that is the priority. <clears throat> that then is the, the nature of God's call to repentance. I want to look at the promise now, God's promise of restoration now, which began, I believe, in verse 18. In verse 18, then... So this is the outcome of this repentance. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land, pity his people. Our hope, whenever we come to God with that heart of repentance, our hope is that the Lord will be jealous for his people, be jealous for us. And that includes a love for us and a desire to benefit us. But again, it goes further than that. God's desire in restoration is that he would be glorified. What does he promise to do for these people? He uh, promises to destroy the locust army. So in verse uh, 20, he says... I will remove far off from you the northern army. We've already seen. We've already seen who the northern army is. It is the locust plague. God calls it his army, his people, this nation that I have raised up. And God says, I'll remove them. I'll divert them and they will all die. Huge stink. Imagine trillions of these things dying. A huge stink will come up. A putrefying smell. And that will be the end of that particular army. You might remember that we, we considered last time how that because of the sins of the people, the I said the flora and fauna also suffered. So this sin of man had repercussions for his environment, the natural world around him. Because uh, crops and flowers and, and trees stripped bare. All those lovely things. They were food for cattle. So the cattle suffered. The cattle were moaning because they were hungry. And if the cattle are not being fed... That then has the effect on the people and threatens them with starvation on a massive scale. Now in God's restoration, this whole thing is reversed. The blessing does not just come to the people, but to all that was affected. With the destruction of the locust army comes a new growth in the crops, the, the fields are green again, the, the trees are producing fruit. There's the possibility of having flowers again. And so, if you look in verse 22, 
the, the actual animals are addressed, if you see what I mean. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. The tree beareth their fruit, and so on. So there is, there is comfort if creatures could appreciate the idea of being comforted. But there is help for the beasts of the field too. And so all those things were undone. I did mention Eden last time. I mentioned how this, uh, this world, man's sin, uh, brought, uh, brought um, negative effects on the animals which started to kill each other and so on. And I mentioned weeds. And you might remember, I mentioned that in the future there will be a world where all those things are reversed. And so there's not only a redemption of the bodies of the believers, but there's a redemption of the whole cosmos. And so we will end up sort of back where we started, but better. <laughs> when we, if we experience this restoration of God at all, our reaction is different from the animals. The animals' consideration is what? Uh, they, they were hungry and now they have food. Like my dog. That's all he thinks about is food. doesn't have high thoughts about anything at all. Just food or going out for a walk. The point is that we, in our reaction to God's restoration, we are to uh, appreciate things on a much, much higher level. Because the restoration is not only about material restoration of things like the, the crops, the food, and so on. It goes further than that. We, we need to appreciate when God restores or gives us material blessings, but we must remember that it is the relationship with God that is the most important aspect of the restoration. For people who are in a low place and maybe are praying to God, uh, repenting and asking for mercy, they may find it difficult to believe. They may find that it's too good to be true to, to think of God restoring everything. And so those people need faith. And if you are in that position, then you have to also uh, ask God to give you faith to believe. So that you're able then to really rejoice in the notion that God can restore absolutely uh, perfectly and even beyond that. One more thing about repentance is that all what I've described, that uh, process of repentance, that is the very road that must be travelled before revival takes place. And so if you seek revival in your own heart or congregation-wide or region-wide, there is this road to walk. There is this repentance that brings these strange outbursts in people's hearts, outbursts of the Holy Spirit. And many of you have read of revivals and if you're uh, convinced of the, 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 
that they are genuine, or the ones that you believe are genuine, then you will understand that God can revive such a person in a, in a way that has an effect on other people. Uh, revival, revival has broken out in small groups of praying individuals just like this place. Just this, this church is not too small, too big or anything. God can revive uh, this place. But at first there must be that spirit of absolute contrition. Well, we have a promise here, a, quite a golden promise in the scriptures in verse 25. What a promise from God. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. Restore those years that the locust has, as it were, eaten. And the mention of locusts, well, it has its immediate reference, of course, to, to this, to this plague and the ending of it, certainly. That promise can be taken. We can take that promise and we can run with it. And we can think about how God is able to restore to us the years the locust has eaten. And so we can think of uh, years before our conversion. If you were brought up in a Christian home and you had this gradual conversion, and it's different, but still, could we not say that in those early years of your life, there was just not the commitment to God that should have been, that it was too faint, and it was only later that you entered into a, a, a state of zealous service. But for those who, like me, converted halfway through their lives, such waste, one life, such waste of that golden time that God has given us. Can it be, can it be that God in this new life I have can restore to me all those lost years? Well, he certainly can. And dare I say it, since becoming a believer that has been wasted time, can I say Ask yourself the same question, brethren. Can you say, since my conversion, I am happy to, to say that, yes, I have dedicated myself fully to the service of God. I have been zealous in prayer and in evangelism and in love for the brethren. If you can't, if you can't say those things, I, I, well, I thank God for you, but... That's not the experience of most people. And so maybe Christians can say, Lord, restore unto us even those years since our conversion, the years that perhaps we have lost, that we have not been really enthusiastic enough for the gospel cause. We can't pray that. I noticed this in verse 14. I thought I'd mention this. So 14, who knows? Who knows if God will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? A meat offering, a meat offering and a drink offering. Well, 
Hang on, I thought the people were praying for, for food, for, for, for the crops to grow, for the, the cattle to have food, for them to have something of a future. I mean, these people were facing perhaps a, the extinction of their whole, their whole race, almost their whole country. That was on the horizon. That's what they faced in this day of the Lord. And yet, the aim in verse 14, the aim of the repentance is, yes, so that we can have some food to survive, but more than that, God might even bless us in this way. He might give us food that we need to survive and extra, because if we had extra we have food and drink offerings to take to the house of God to bring an offering to him and worship him. And the people had that at the very, at the very top, at the very top of their priorities. Imagine that. When God leaves someone to their own devices, part of that temporary curse for us, the temporary curse is... An inability to worship God. There is perhaps such a distance between us and God that it becomes, uh, we, we simply can't bring ourselves to worship God. It could be some other uh, problem, some barrier to us worshipping. And no Christian can have any sort of joy to speak of if he is prevented from worshipping God, which is why I bang on all the time to people about the nonsense of worshipping, choosing to worship God at home. If you can make it to, the, to meet with the Lord's people and you choose to stay at home with your do-it-yourself religion, I've got no time for such things. God wants us to be together and worship him together. And if he ever withholds or puts a barrier uh, there and, and he withholds us from worshipping, we will never have any joy. And the, the, the reason for this, friends, is, 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 the, is the way God made us. God made us in such a way that we must have a relationship with God. And these people out, outside who are alive but don't have a relationship with God. They are not people in the sense the way God made them, you know? They are not realising the fullness of their humanity because the, the, the most important thing in their lives is not there. They're beating it down. Well, God's blessing is seen with these people in that they had enough after they'd eaten, they had the evidence of God's abundance because they were able to take some of this and offer it to the Lord as offerings in the temple. And, well, we might say that if God restores us, he doesn't just make us happy and so we can sit at home with a feeling of contentment. He breaks down all barriers so that we are able to worship him fully including with the Lord's people.
And that becomes the evidence of a restoration. And that is where we see joy brought back into that person's life. It's all about God's glory, friends. Always is about God's glory. Let me, uh, let me finish on this, uh, talking about God's uh, call uh, to repentance and his promise of restoration. And I thought it's important to include this. I've given this section a title, God's Habit of Abundance. God's Habit of Abundance. Well, even in our text, we see God going further than is perhaps thought necessary in verse 26, for example. It says, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Verse 26, ye shall eat in plenty. For God to be merciful, he would only need to provide enough food for people to survive. Not eat in plenty. Could it be that God loves to give us more than we expect? Is that what it is? It seems so. It seems that he likes to, he likes to, in his restoration, give us more than we had in the first place. Not merely take us back to where we were, but improve our state. When you think about Job, do you remember that Job lost his, 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 his business and his family? But what happened at the end? Did God replace the business and the family so that he had it all back again? Well, he did more than that. God restored to him more than he had in the first place. He had a more successful business, a better lifestyle, and a larger family. <coughs> That's what God delights to do. He wants to restore those years that the locust has eaten. And he does it marvellously. Think about Jesus as well with the disciples. The disciples were coming to terms with those things which they had had to give up in the service of Christ. And Jesus says, you are going to receive blessings in this life that will surpass all that you have given up. Not only that, but there's all that is to come in the, the world to come in eternity. In other words, they will end up with more than they started with, more than they lost. If you are, if you were, a, let's say you were a person who was elderly, say, well, to give an age, I'll, I'll get in their trouble. But let's say we can agree that to be in your 80s is elderly, perhaps. And it could be that a person in their 80s repents and ask God to restore unto them the years the locust has eaten. You may think that it's impossible for God to do much of a restoration in a few years when decades perhaps have been wasted, but God is in control of time. God can affect how efficiently we do things. It's, if this makes any sense, it's almost like God can affect the density of our service to him so that we can accomplish more in a very short time than we would have done in many, many years. He can restore those years. It says in verse 26 that God 
has done. Um, it says, I dealt wondrously, have dealt wondrously with you. Wondrously. This is to convey surprise. The restoration of God, it's surprising. It's, uh, in fact, this is something that I did not expect as a Christian. That um, I started to notice a pattern in answered prayers that they went further than I expected. I ask for this and I get this plus something on top. And I thought maybe, maybe God's just temporarily being generous this week or something. But this has been a pattern that has continued down the years. And my wife will testify to the same thing. <clears throat> Wondrous. God can do what we ask. Yes, God can do what we ask. God can do all that we ask. I'll go further. He can do above all that we ask. God can and does do abundantly. There's that word. God can do abundantly above all that we can ask or even think. And yet the scriptures <laughs> goes even further. The scripture says God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even contemplate in our minds. Such is the God that we serve. And such is this God of grace. And we should trust fully in God's ability to fully restore unto us the years that the locust has eaten. Amen. Amen.